Hi everyone, welcome back to Seek First Podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Rick Brown here. Take a minute to subscribe to Seek First Podcast. I really appreciate it. Stick around, I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready, grab your Bible, prepare your heart and your mind. Let's roll. We are in the Gospel of John chapter one for our message satisfying the hungry hearts. I want to thank everybody that's been praying for us. My uh, mom, as you guys know, I had three weeks of pretty intense time by my mom's deathbed, and we had her memorial service this last week, and it was an incredible tribute to my mom, which was our desire. Uh, my brother and I, who are both preachers, we both shared about her life and shared the gospel, and the grandkids sang amazing music that was over the top. It was a packed house, standing room only, as uh, my mom is one of a kind to be able to fill up a room. You know, when you're 82 and you fill up a room for a funeral, it's a big deal, because you go to a lot of uh, funerals when people get older, and the older they get, the smaller the numbers get, mainly because all their friends are already dead. But... Uh, when you touch a lot of lives uh, also multi in multi-generations, as my mom did, it was really an incredible time. So thank you for everybody that prayed for us, and uh, we had some closure to put it all together. You see, my older brother passed away back in 2012 of AIDS, and uh, my mom had held on to his ashes because she never wanted to have a service until she passed away. She wanted to do it with my brother, and so... We had uh, my mom's ashes, my brother's ashes, and my stepfather's son was killed in a tragic car wreck a few years ago at the age of 50, and we had his ashes. So we had three people that we were honoring as we had that portion of the service. And so it was quite um, powerful in the sense that here you have these three bags of ashes representing people. And the Lord tells us in his word that we, you know, we came from the dust and we're going to return to the dust. And cremation just accelerates that process uh, beyond what the grave normally does, right? And, um, but as we, as we poured those out, just realizing the hope, all of this took place in the week of Easter, the hope of the resurrection. That it's not over. That my mom is safely in heaven, my older brother is safely in heaven with Jesus. They had both committed their lives to the Lord, and we had that absolute confidence. And what kind of hope does that bring? We don't grieve as those who have no hope. And I was so thankful as we were going through all of this that the people I love are waiting for me. Because at 57, you know, I'm not very far behind, right? A couple of decades, and I'm going to be there unless a car wreck takes me this week, which I'm ready. Let's exit. Let's go, Jesus. I'm ready to get my ticket, and you guys can pay all the bills. That's a great, you know, uh, the child of God has tremendous hope. Well, uh, moving on to our message, as we look at satisfying hungry hearts, we want to read from John chapter 1. If you made your way there, we're going to pick it up in John chapter 1, verse 29. Please stand with me, and we're going to read God's word, and then we're going to get into this message as we see Jesus satisfying hungry hearts. It tells us as we pick it up in verse 29 of the Gospel of John, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. Father, we ask now that you would refresh our hearts, 
from the nourishment of your word, that you would speak to each one of us, that you would satisfy our hungry hearts. Lord, the men and women that have come this afternoon, all of us are in this plight of this fallen world. And Lord, we long for a satisfaction that is deeper than the things that this world offers. We know that there is more to this life than going through the motions of working, eating, and sleeping. And Lord, we want to tap into all the spiritual depth and resources that you offer us, Jesus, the living waters. Baptize us afresh in the work of your spirit to satisfy our hearts with the longing of our souls, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you may be seated. You know, back in 1949, uh, September 25th, kicked off an epic, historic crusade of Billy Graham in Los Angeles. They had put together this uh, crusade that was supposed to be three weeks. Basically, he was ministering with um, Youth for Christ and was a young up-and-coming evangelist, and they had no idea what was going to take place in the fall of 1949. Now, in that same year, as he is going to be harvesting a tremendous harvest of souls, my uh, grandfather was winning an Academy Award. Uh, he was a cinematographer, and he was winning an Academy Award for She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. He won three Academy Awards, uh, Winton Seahawk, and he won one for The Quiet Man with John Wayne, the boxer movie in Ireland. Uh, my grandfather was the cinematographer on that. And uh, he was winning these trophies, these, um, you know, the little gold man, the Oscars. And uh, I was recently at my Uncle Dave, who has two of them, and then my Uncle Steve's boy, Scott, has another one of them. And I asked him, I said, hey, uh, I, I want to see the Oscars. It's been some time since I've seen the Oscar. And so he goes to his house, and, and my Uncle Dave is an old cowboy. This is hard to believe, but he's an old cowboy with a mule and a couple of horses in Beverly Hills. So he's got one of these little ranchettes that's like an acre, and in the back it's got some corrals. And he rides around the neighborhood in Beverly Hills with a little horse cart with his little pony cart. And everybody knows Dave Hoke who uh, rides around the neighborhood. Anyway, he hadn't been in this room in years. And he goes to the door, and the door's kind of jammed. And he pushes through the door, and the door is, the room is filled with cobwebs. It hasn't been opened in a decade or so. And I go over, and there's this little cutout in the wall. Now, my grandparents, when they lived in Bel Air, they had these on the, uh, right next to the fireplace mantle. And, uh, but he had them in this room, filled with cobwebs, with this little cutout. And I literally, I had to find uh, kind of an old rag that was there, and knock the cobwebs away from the thing to be able to see, uh, there's a Grammy there, and there's these Oscars. And he was winning this in the golden era of Hollywood. Well, at the same time, my grandfather was collecting Oscars. Billy Graham was collecting souls. The Oscars are covered with cobwebs, now gone, forgotten. Nobody knows who my grandfather is, Winton C. Hoke who was a kind of a cutting-edge guy in cinematography in his day, and the guy behind the screen of a lot of the famous John Ford movies, The Searchers and various things. Anyway, Hollywood took off as the Spirit of God fell upon Billy Graham. Check out this sign back in the day with Billy Graham, the young evangelist. Look how the second picture here, look how large this tent is. And this tent held 6,000 people. And they were having nightly meetings. And what was supposed to be three weeks, they kept extending by a week, a week, a week, a week. And it ended up lasting 57 days, almost two straight months, with this 6,000 seats. 350,000 people came through there, and 3,000 people professed Christ, as well as some very famous people in radio and Hollywood and various things. And nobody knows why. But... Uh, Randolph Hearst, who was the big newspaper magnet of the day, somewhere in this period, he heard and he saw what was going on there, and so he just sent a two-word note to his newspapers, Puff Graham, 
which meant give him all the press, put him on the front page, elevate this whole thing. And so they puffed Graham, and from coast to coast, this became famous. Billy Graham came into Los Angeles, nobody, in 19, September of 1949, and when he got off the train in Chicago, people recognized him at the train station because of the newspapers. And overnight, and then for the next 60 years, Billy Graham's message to repent and come to Christ has changed literally thousands of people's lives. Do you know that Billy Graham has preached to 50 million people in his lifetime? That's not talking about radio. That's not talking about in print. That's talking about in person, in stadiums for 60 years. In this story that is in front of us, there's a guy that God called. He didn't even have a tent. He was in the wilderness and was John the Baptist. And he comes preaching under the anointing of the Spirit a simple message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is coming and there is one that is coming after me that will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. I'm baptizing with the water. And in this moment, as the crowds are coming, and it starts small, but you see, there is this hunger in the souls of men and women, and that is a, a hunger for redemption. As it opens up in verse 29, it says that John saw Jesus coming, and he declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the Lord is the one that wants to seek you and purchase you with his precious blood. But there is a longing from our grandparents, you know, your grandparents and mine, Adam and Eve, from the time they sinned in the garden and they were hiding, trying to sew some fig leaves together in the garden, they started the whole experience of humans trying to hide from God. Why don't people want to come to church? You invite your neighbor. Hey, it's Easter, you want to come to church? And they'll come up with every excuse under the sun, won't they? Oh, no, you know, i got to wash my car. i got to wash my cat. i got to wash something. I, I can't come. Because people know innately if they come close to the things of God, they might hear about God and realize they need to get right with God, and people are hiding. They hide with busyness and various things. But here in Israel at this time, the crowds, they start small, and they begin to grow, and it begins to be enormous. And so when Jesus shows up as the one that John the Baptist was to hand off the ministry to and begin to decrease as Jesus increased, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. My great need and your great need to satisfy our hungry souls is to first of all deal with the guilt and the shame and the humiliation of our own sin. I was doing a live stream this week with Bryce Eddy and he was sharing with me about a, 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 a co-worker that he worked with for years and she was just fire breathing in her passion to support pro-choice that she had had an abortion and women need this right to have abortion and she would just get so adamant and fired up when he would have this discussion with her and one day in the discussion he simply said do you know that the Lord will forgive you for that and this person that was so passionate preaching her right and how she had done it herself and everything in that gentle word where he said the Lord will forgive you for that he said she broke and turned in a second and it was like projectile tears started flowing out of her eyes as she realized her great need what she was preaching she protested too much you know what I mean when people try to defend they try to justify their actions when they just simply need in brokenness to repent and say, God, please forgive me. Why should I try to justify all these actions? Why should I try to cover this stuff up? And it's our real need for redemption that John the Baptist brings on the scene and the revelation that the Lord had given to him that when the Messiah showed up, he would be the one that the Spirit descended like a dove and remained, and that's how John would identify he was the right one to hand off that ministry baton to. And at the end of verse 33, we have the realization that this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit because the real need is, first of all, for us to experience redemption and forgiveness and the washing and cleansing with Jesus' blood for our guilt and our sins, but then to be empowered and energized with a whole new resource because you and I realize we are bankrupt inside to have the right resources we need to live the life that God wants us to live, right? We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus was promising. This is what John knew he was going to come and bring. But more than that, it was the realization that the one that was going to baptize us in the Spirit was actually, as it says in verse 34, he is the Son of God. 
my great need and your great need and people that have no idea what their great need is, is really to connect as creation to creator with the Son of God. This is your deepest need. This is the deepest longing of a human soul, even when we don't know how to identify it. What we do is we grope around the dark looking for all these things that might satisfy us. Maybe it's a relationship over here. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a degree. Maybe it's, you know, accumulating a bunch of stuff. And we go through life trying to find something that will satisfy this deep aching within us. But then we see in this Not only the hungry crowds, but now it's going to break down into very smaller branches from the tree of the big crowd down to hungry friends, two by two, and then individuals. Because it really gets down to the Jimmies and the Joes, doesn't it? It gets down to Sally and Jill that need the Lord. It's one thing to talk about mass evangelism. It's another thing to talk about these crowds that are coming. But it's another thing to talk about your testimony. What happened to you? Why were you coming? What friend reached out to you? In verse 35, it says, Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus, he, as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. <laughs> you know, as I, I was meditating on this passage, it was just kind of ironic and funny. But I, w- I was working on my message uh, earlier today, and I had went over to the deli, and I got me a sandwich, and the deli is very convenient. Have you discovered that? Let's go over and see Ernie at the deli. They got great food. This is an advertisement. I get a commission. Please go. Um, but I had went over and got a, a sandwich and some chips. And I was walking back with my sandwich and chips. And I got my head down. And I'm thinking about this. And I'm thinking about John, John saying, hey, behold the Lamb of God that goes by. And, and I'm walking through our apartment complex. And there's this little toddler. And he's a couple of stories up. And you could tell he was a visitor to these uh, apartments because it was new. You know, he's hanging onto the bars. And he's looking through. And he's probably two or three years old. And, and he says, mom and dad, a man walks by. A man walks by. It's like he was trying out his words. Like he knows the words. And I'm looking at this little kid and, and, and him announcing me walking by with my little sandwich and chips. <laughs> In a much more epic way, these two disciples that we're going to find out, one is Andrew and the other is John, when Jesus walks by, John the Baptist just says, Behold the Lamb of God. You looking for someone? You want to connect? You want to follow someone? You want to have somebody satisfy your soul? That's the, that's the guy you want to follow. Because you see, in our own way, each one of us are following someone. We're following something. We're following some ideology. We're following some, some pattern. And it tells us in verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. When John announced that Jesus is the one you should follow, these two, respecting John's encouragement, knowing that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, they followed him. In verse 38, then Jesus turned and seeing them, following, said to them, what do you seek? And of the practicality of the conversation and the question and answer time that God has with people, his people, throughout the scriptures. It's like saying to Adam in the garden, Adam, where are you? Now, did the God of the universe honestly not know where Adam was in the garden? Can you play hide-and-seek with God and win? I mean, honestly, just think about it. Adam, where are you? You know, I lost the, the first couple I ever created. Where are they at? No. Why does he ask Adam, where are you? Because he wants Adam to confess where he's at. Not just geographically location behind this bush, but where he's at in proximity to his relationship with God. He said, I was afraid. I, I hid because I'm naked. The Lord's like, who told you you were naked? How'd you discover this? And they have this dialogue back and forth. And Jesus turns around and he sees these two following him. He's got two stalkers behind him, right? They're spiritual stalkers. They mean no harm. But he turns around and he says, hey, what are you guys, what are you looking for? I often wonder as I sit, sometimes it's fun as a preacher, that I had an office that for many years, as people would flood into the church for four services a weekend. I would sit there, and it was a second story, and I could see the people coming out of the parking lot and seeing them come in. And so often I would just wonder in my mind, what are they looking for? What are they seeking? Is this, is this couple walking in right here? Are they trying to patch things up in their marriage? Is this solo guy coming in on his Harley trying to beat an addiction? What are they looking for? As you came to church on Saturday afternoon here at God's Week, 
What are you looking for? What kind of satisfaction does your soul need? What, what, what are you hungering for? Why did you come to get close to Jesus? And what are you looking for? Is it just simply the gratitude of expression to come and worship him? Because of all that he's done in your life? Those who are forgiven much, love much? What a blessing that is when we're coming to offer. But I don't know about you. I'm a pretty needy guy every day of my life for what's going on inside of me. Every day of my life, it's like, Jesus, help me. <laughs> help me not make a mess of my life, right? And the reality is, as he asked them that, they just generically say, where you stand? We, we just, you know what? We would like to come over and have a meal, maybe spend the night. Where you stand? Because nothing introduces you to someone like staying where they're staying, right? You want to know people? You could go to church for 30 years with somebody at church, You've got a casual relationship. You know the Lord. You'd say, we're good friends for 30 years. You go on a two-week mission trip, and you go to a whole new level. You realize these people are really weird. You didn't know that for 30 years. But now they got all these quirks and all these special needs, and they're complainers, and they're this and that. It's like, you want to get to know people. You live where they live. You eat where they eat, and you hang out in that way. So as they come, it says in verse 39, Jesus invited them to do it. He said, come and see. And they came and saw where he was, staying, and remained with him that day. Now, it was about the ninth hour. It was such an epic moment that actually John writes down here, it's, it's the tenth hour. Now, the tenth hour, if it's, uh, if it's the Jewish calendar or the time clock, so to speak, it would be four o'clock in the afternoon. If it's the Romans, then it would be 10 o'clock in the morning. So we're not sure which one he's using, but John is writing this gospel, and it will appear to us that most theologians believe, because all the way through the gospel of John, John never names himself specifically. He always does it in a second person, third person type of way. And here when it says there's two of the disciples, we're going to find out one's Andrew. Who do you think the other one is? It's probably John. Right? These guys are hooked at the hip, Peter and Andrew, James and John. These guys are fishing buddies. They've grown up in the same city. You're going to find out in a moment, meet another guy, another one of their homies from the town of Bethsaida, which means fish town. Where do you live? We live in fish town. What do you do? We fish. I mean, the whole place smells like fish and scales and fish guts. I mean, it's, it's, that's who they are there in the Galilee. So they come. And they come and see. And that is the, really the easiest way when I'm ministering to someone and I'm inviting them to come and see what God is doing. They'll say, you know, I've heard about that God speak place. I'll, I'll just say, come and see. Just come and check it out. Just come observe. See the joy of the Lord. Come see the peace of the Lord. Come see the love of the Lord. Come, come taste and see that the Lord is good. Because a lot of ministry is more caught than taught. You come into an atmosphere, somebody's home, and they have this incredible grace and peace around their home. And they're going to come and they're going to see. Now, we go from a big hungry crowd that discovers that Jesus is the Lamb of God. They discover redemption. To these hungry friends who are going to follow Jesus and stay where they're at. Now we get to hungry individuals. For it tells us in verse 40, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, he who brought him to Jesus. And now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, or Peter, which is translated a stone. Cephas is Aramaic. Peter is Greek. And the first thought that now he's coming Andrew, and we believe the other one's the, the Apostle John. So John and Andrew, they go and hang out with Jesus for a few days. They realize he's the real deal. You couldn't be with Jesus and not sense his deity, his anointing, his love, this supernatural person and presence, who he was. And so after some time, the first thing they want to do is, who do you think of first? When you came to Christ, who is the first person you wanted to tell? Who was the first person you called? Who was the first person you went over to their house and knocked on the door and said, hey, I gave my life to Christ? Now, when I gave my life to Christ, the first person I did tell was my mom because she came home from playing, uh, my mom played in uh, country and western bands every weekend uh, in bars all over the valley and also in Nevada. So she had just come back from Elko. She had played in this casino 
Friday, Saturday, and uh, was coming home on a Sunday afternoon. And I was, I just received the Lord. I was running all over the house. I'd been crying because I was so overwhelmed by Jesus' grace that he would forgive me of my sins. And my mom walked in the door, and I ran up, and I gave her a big hug. And I said, Mom, Mom, I'm saved, I'm saved. Now, you have to realize how startling this is for my mother. First of all, she's coming from a weekend at the bar playing a country and western music. That's her world. And, and she knew how much trouble I was in. I mean, just the year before, she had to <laughs> get a bail bondsman to get me out of jail. She knew the drugs I was doing. She knew the violence I was in. She knew shortly before that, in another case, uh, her and another father had to throw in together for a lawyer to get us off from uh, uh, physical damages where we beat these guys up really bad. And so this is who I was. My mom said I came into this world with no stop signs and no speed limits. And she had just kind of thrown up her hands and said, oh, you know, I don't know what to do with you. And now I, she walks in and what's she hear? I'm saved. What? As she regained her composure, she said with a very weak smile, that's nice, honey. Kind of like incredulous. She I was half drunk also, so she probably smelled the alcohol on my breath. So there's a lot going on in that moment. But honestly, the first person I wanted to share with was my older brother, Scotty, because him and I are simpatico from our youth. And he had been acting really funny for the previous six months, which I didn't know it. He was being an undercover Christian, but he wouldn't tell me. He was leaving the parties. He was not going with the girls. And I just kept looking at him and said, what's up with you? And he wouldn't, he just put his head down. He was just, I think he had blown it so many times in his commitment to the Lord that he didn't want to go on record until he actually lived it out. I don't know what was really going on inside of him. But I wanted to tell him. You know, when you are excited about meeting the Lord, you can't wait to tell the people you love because you want them to know him like you do. You want them to experience his love and his forgiveness. And ultimately, you want them to be in heaven with you, with him. My wife, she, she wrote letters to her best friend and her parents, and they were very strong letters, Turner Burn type letters. And they didn't speak to her for months. But it was her great love that she wanted to convey it. But in our youthful zeal, sometimes we're not very tactful. Right, any of you guys do figure that out? You're just kind of a big blunder. Do you know that you'll, the average Christian will reach more people for Christ that are unsaved in the first six months of your salvation than you will for the rest of your entire life? Why? Because after six months, all of your friends become Christians, and you don't hang out with, you know, the, the riffraff you used to hang out with. So that's how it works. I lost all my old friends, and then I got new friends, because my old friends didn't want anything to do with me, unless they started going to church. Now, Scotty and I, once we both went on record, we started rounding up all our friends and taking them to church, which was pretty weird, because we, we were just getting really in a lot of trouble, and now we're like, hey, you want to go to church? Bring your Bible. That's quite a, a paradigm shift in people's lives. Now, these guys are good Jewish boys, but realize they're just as empty as any person because the law could not do for them what Jesus could do. Peter will say later in his life in ministry in the book of Acts, I've never eaten anything unclean. I have never been in a Gentile's house. He was a good Jewish boy. Do you know that you can be a very good religious person? You can actually be a very good moral person here, and you can be lost and on your way to hell. Did you know that? Because it is only Jesus' finished work of death, burial, on the cross is the only means. By faith, I say, I trust Jesus for what he has done for me to get to heaven. That is the only way you can go is on the basis of his merit, not my merit. Not my worth, his worth. All he asked me to do is believe with that childlike faith. Now, here Andrew goes and gets Simon, but this is the cool thing about the, now the individuals that are going to come to Jesus, two of them specifically, is Jesus is going to read their mail. Has this ever happened to you? You ever come to church and the preacher just like 
share stories and illustrations that you just look around and like, did my mother call? You ever have that happen to you? You feel like it's just reading your mail. There's nothing to me cooler than that with the supernatural presence. That's what prophecy is. It's under the anointing of the word of God going forth that it is custom fit for your life. One day I was preaching at an Easter service. We had rented the Civic Auditorium. It was a packed house. It would seat 1,800 people. We had multiple services. And there was somebody up in the balcony. We had this one friend. Jill, Jill was her name. And, and she saved 19 seats, and she invited 19 unsaved friends. And every one of them came because she, had a, she was a great friend to people. And one of them that came that day was super hungover. And I'm sharing my message. And in the middle of my message... I just have this thought, hey, you're here today, and you're hungover. You don't even want to be in church. Your head is just like pounding right now, and you closed down the blue room last night. That was a notorious bar in our town. And I said, you closed down the blue room, and here you are uh, with a thump, thumping headache, and I just want you to know how much Jesus loves you to bring you here, even hungover, after closing down the bar last night, to show you his grace and forgiveness, to have a relationship with you. Well, that, that individual's name was Scott. And it was a very specific individual, and he was so torqued off at Jill that she told on him to the preacher. Now, she never told me. I didn't know. It was so much so that Jill called me that afternoon, and she said, this Scott guy, he is so torqued off at me, he's convinced that I told you these things. And uh, she said, I, I mean, we've been friends for a long time. I don't know what's going to happen. I said, don't worry about it. I mean, it'll smooth out. He called her twice that afternoon to tell her off. And then he got saved and started coming to church. <laughs> and it, he had been going to our church, even teaching Sunday school. He had been in our church for three years before he finally introduced me as the, the blue room guy. He said, Pastor. And I said, yeah, Scott. Now I'd met him since then. He said, I have a confession to make. I said, what is that? He said, you know on Easter when you talked about the blue room guy? And I said, I know. Wasn't that funny? It was like so random out of nowhere. See, I didn't know it was him. And he goes, I'm the guy. And I said, what? He said, I'm that guy. I closed down the blue room. I was hungover. I got so mad at Jill. And said, hey, now I know that God loves me so much that he supernaturally read my mail. You see, that's what Jesus does here to Peter. He says, your name's Simon. The word Simon means to hear but he says, I'm going to change your name. You see, Jesus, and this is what he does for each one of us. He sees who we are without Christ, and then he sees the potential of who we are with Christ. Those are radically different people. And so he says, but you're going to be Cephas. You're going to be a stone. You're going to be a rock you're a person that's going through life, and we realize this about Peter's temperament. He really needs a stabilizing factor like Jesus in his life because he has foot-and-mouth disease all the way through the Gospels. He just keeps putting his foot in his mouth, and he says whatever he thinks, but he needs that stabilizing factor. You know, how has Jesus changed your nature, changed your character, and you see he's given you a different name? He gave Jacob a different name to Israel. God loves to change people's names because it's a picture of him cha changing their nature and their character. In verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. These guys are all friends. It's all small town. Bethsaida, once again, means fish town. They grew up in this little town, this little community. And Jesus found him, and now he's saved. But what does Philip want to do? Just like Andrew wants to bring Simon, uh, his uh, brother, Philip, it says in verse 45, found Nathanael, who from only here in the Gospel of John, but in all the other Gospels, if you want to know who Nathanael is, he's not mentioned. He is Bartholomew in the, the other Gospels. And so uh, this is one of the 12 apostles. But Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. He said the same thing that Jesus said. Hey, why don't you come and see? Why don't you come check it out? Now, Nathaniel is a very astute, studious, contemplative individual. He's also a very critical thinker when he finds out that Jesus is from Nazareth, which is thought to be the armpit of the land of Israel because it's a pagan, uh, Gentile-dominated area. 
where there was a Roman garrison. And so it was very, uh, it, it was, did you grow up with one of those places that if you want to make fun of someone, you say you're from here? This is, that's Nazareth. When I grew up, it was, I would, we would say, hey, it's like being from Wells, Nevada. Now, Wells, Nevada is just over the Idaho line, and there's two casinos, and there's two houses of prostitution. That's Wells, Nevada. And if you ever met somebody that was from Wells, Nevada, they had a very unique personality, right, growing up in that culture. So we would say, hey, you're, you're from Wells, Nevada. Here, it's, it, can any good thing come from Nazareth? <laughs> and he's like, well, I don't know. Jesus has. Sometimes God brings people from very unexpected places from the humble beginnings to put them on a platform. Now, in this case, obviously, he's the son of God, but it happens in other people's lives as well. And Nathaniel's hesitant to come and listen, but he does. But he's going to have the same experience that Peter does. Jesus is going to read his mail. Because your ultimate need is to experience redemption and fellowship, but also a great desire of humanity is to be known. You want to be known. You go to a gathering or a group of people. You want to be able to share your life and learn about other people's lives. We want to be known. And the thing that Jesus brings to us is that ultimate spiritual intimacy of knowledge that he knows everything about us and he still loves us. Isn't that a shocker? Nobody knows everything about you. Nobody. You go, oh yeah, my husband. No, they don't. They don't know the thoughts that go through your head every day. And there's a reason you don't tell them right? Because you want people still to like you. I'm a very open preacher to a degree because I want to have a job next Sunday. You don't know everything about me. But the desire to be known and to know this, that Jesus knows me inside and out. He knows my thoughts. I love Psalm 139, that he knows my thoughts afar off before I even think them. He sees me sitting down. He sees me rising up. He sees me laying down. He sees, he sees my whole life from beginning to end. My life is a finished book in the, the eyes of the Lord Jesus. And he knows all my stumblings. And he knows all my failures. And he knows all my temptations. And he knows all my sins. And he knows all my victories and all the good things that my life has done. He knows it all and he still loves me. And he still loves you. And Nathaniel here is going to be blown away as Jesus shows his level of knowledge that he has of Nathaniel in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, Behold an Israelite in whom, indeed, in whom is no deceit. He says, You know what I know about you? You're an honest guy. You're a straight shooter. There's no deceit in you. Nathaniel said to him in verse 48, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He said, I saw you. Now, there's a, there's a supernatural element to this because this convinces Nathanael immediately because he was under this tree. He was under this fig tree. And he's there and he's thinking about things. And, and Jesus, in this prophetic, supernatural way, however it works, he saw him there. And Nathanael responds, you are the son of God. And Jesus answered and said to him in verse 50, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. I think that there's a, a deeper step that Jesus even reads Nathaniel's mail here that he said, I saw you under the fig tree. What was Nathaniel thinking under the fig tree? He seems to be a very devout Jewish young man. And he's there under the fig tree, and maybe he's meditating on the passage of Scripture where Jacob has run away from home because Esau's going to kill him. He runs away from home. His mom sends him away to get a, a, a wife back from her family. And he goes to sleep at night. He puts a rock under his head, and Jacob goes to sleep. And for the first time, Jacob's alone with God. He's not around his family. And he goes to sleep by himself, and in his dream, the heaven, there's this ladder that goes from heaven to earth, and the angels are ascending and descending upon it. Now, when Jacob wakes up in the morning, 
He's so overwhelmed by this spiritual dream that basically he has seen the stairway or the access to heaven in a relationship with God. And he woke up and he said, truly God is in this place, and I didn't know it. You see, God is always where you are, right? Every place you are, but you're not aware of it. In this moment, he became aware of it, and he said, I'm going to name this Bethel. And he stood the rock upright, and he poured oil on it, and he anointed it, and he said, this is Bethel, the house of God. This is the simplest building project in the history of the Bible. A one rock, you know, <laughs> church building. But I think Nathaniel, and this is reading between the lines, I think Nathaniel is under that fig tree. He's thinking about Jacob and Jacob's ladder and this, angels ascending and descending. And Philip comes along and says, Hey, we found the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Come and see. So he comes. And then Jesus said, I saw you under that fig tree. And you know what? You're going to see angels ascending and descending on me, the Son of Man, the Son of God. You see, I am the way to heaven. I am the stairway to heaven. I am the access point. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Nathaniel, and no one comes to the Father but by me. I'm that way. Nathaniel, if you believe just simply because I said, I saw you supernaturally underneath this fig tree while you're meditating on something, let me tell you even more that you're going to see greater things than that as you hang out with me in life and ministry. These revelations that unfold in this passage of Scripture are beautiful pictures of God interacting with an individual and calling them. Now he knows them. They've been redeemed. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world as the promised Messiah. They've spent time in fellowship with him. Now they are known by him in an intimate way, and they're going to become his apostles, his disciples, and he's going to call them into service to follow him. Because once I'm redeemed, and once I have fellowship with God, and once I'm known by him intimately, and this trust has grown, and he calls me to his service. Because the thing that people are looking for is meaning and purpose in this life. Correct? You want to have something. Have you discovered this monotonous pattern of life? You go to work. Come home, check on the news, eat a meal, visit with your family, go to sleep. You get up in the morning, you eat breakfast, have coffee, check the news. You go to work, you come home, you nah, 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 for the next 60 years. That's your life. Now, is there any more to life than eating, sleeping, working, and paying the bills? And if you have kids, changing diapers? Is there any more than that? Is there any deeper meaning to life? Is there any relationship in which I can be known by God, redeemed by God, and now actually used by God? Because you see, for me, that was the real thrill of my life. I couldn't believe that God would love somebody like me and forgive me. Those who are forgiven much love much. I was blown away. I just, that I could worship the Lord and know the Lord and know that I'm going to heaven was enough for me. I was a happy construction worker. I'm a tile setter by trade. I'm working, setting tile, and I love being on the construction site with the, the, <laughs> the rough and tumble pagan guys that every other word is the F-bomb, right? That's the word of construction. And here you are as a Christian being salt and light, and I would share my faith and invite guys to church and share the gospel, and they would tell me to uh, whatever. And... <laughs> and I, I loved it, and I thought to me, if God uses my life in that way, that's great. That's all I need. I had this helper that helped me, and he was not a Christian, and I, I would listen to Christian radio, and he goes, this is not fair. You listen to, you know, Christian radio, and I said, well, what do you want to listen to? I said, we'll, we'll make this very democratic. You listen one day, you can choose the station, and I'll do the next one. So I would listen to Christian radio all day on Monday, and then on Tuesday, he got to listen to country and western. But he would listen, and he's an unsaved guy, and... I, the old school radio was really cool. Any of you remember Unshackled? Unshackled was testimonies about uh, the uh, Chicago Rescue Mission. And it's like, had this old organ music. Unshackled. I mean, it's so dorky. I mean, it's like really old school. But the, the narratives were so powerful. They, they really were. And so this unsaved guy that I was with, he would say, hey, it's, it's your day for the radio. When, when's that story program on? And I'm like, Mr. Country and Western, he likes Unshackled. Woo, woo, woo. 
here's the story of so-and-so that was an alcoholic and lost his family and lost his foot while it was frostbitten, but he gave his life to Christ. You know, it was like this whole story thing. I was happy just to be used by God to share the gospel. And then one of the elders said, hey, you want to teach Sunday school? I was terrified of the third and fourth graders. And these guys, they've been in Sunday school longer than I've been saved. They know the Bible better than I did. But I started teaching Sunday school. And then the youth leader asked me if I would help. And I said, I don't want to teach junior high and high schools. I'm already intimidated by the third and fourth graders. I said, I'll help with the events. You know, you want to take them swimming, you do what, I'll drive the bus. And I was at a men's retreat. The pastor was preaching, and it had nothing to do with his message. And as I was sitting there, just fat, dumb, and happy at this men's retreat, there's about three foot of snow out. It's up past Sun Valley, Idaho, at Cathedral Pines. And I'm in this meeting, and the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me and said, you're going into full-time service. It was so powerful and clear that in, in the meeting, I turned around to look at the guy behind me because I thought, maybe I just overheard Jesus talking to him. Because it most certainly couldn't be for me. I turned around and looked at him, and then I told myself, this is really weird. This is, and the Lord spoke to my heart. And I went home, and I confirmed it with my wife, that she also thought I was confirmed that I was crazy. Because neither one of us grew up in church. She's like, what, what are you going to do? You're, you don't know how to do, I said, I know. This is, this is crazy. The Lord's got a bad idea. I, I'm the wrong guy. God's got to have some, somebody else. But you know, in his time and his provision, he chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He chooses people that simply love him and like hanging out with him and like to tell other people about him. That's who he uses. I have no big resume. I wanted to go to Bible school, so I at least had like a seminary degree or something. And I told the elders at the church, said, hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to sell my home. I'll make enough money to go through the uh, Bible program up at Twin Peaks for the Calvary Chapel Bible program. It's a year and a half. I'm going to go through there, and I'm going to get a little piece of paper that says, I can do this. And the elders of the church said, don't do that. We'll give you, you just go to work at church, and we're going to give you on-the-job training. Well, that doesn't look very good because you can't get anything on the wall. What's your plaque say? On-the-job training. I teach Bible studies and counsel people with desperate help from the Holy Spirit. But the joy of being used by God as a very average person is the most fulfilling, rewarding, exciting, meaningful, satisfying, thing that God could ever call me to do. Because the joy of knowing Jesus and he knows me, he knows everything about me and he still loves me. And to be able to share that love with other people and to see them come to Christ, to see them forgiven, to see their life transformed and changed by the spirit and the grace of God, to see Jesus read their mail and to change their name, so to speak, and to see the potential in them because honestly, Jesus said it so well. What if a man gains the whole world and he loses his soul? What if I ascend and I become a billionaire? What if I rival the Bill Gates and the Elon Musk and the Mark Zuckerbergs for wealth? What if I rival people if I go for academia and I have lots of letters after my name that mean that I'm smart? What if I accumulate a lot of wealth? What if I get fame in Hollywood? What if I win an Oscar? And a couple of decades from now, it's covered with cobwebs. So what? You know what? The interesting thing about Winton C. Hope, my grandfather, is nobody knows who he is. And he won three Oscars. Because he's an old school guy, right? The only thing that really matters for eternity is your personal relationship with the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world.
Nothing else will satisfy you. Nothing else will get you through. Nothing else will help your marriage work. Nothing else will help you raise kids. Nothing else will help you have the security when you're on your deathbed, knowing exactly where you're going. Because the reality is, without Jesus satisfying my soul, I'm a total mess. And sometimes it's even questionable on Mondays. Because I am one beggar showing the other beggars where the bread is. We all come to the Lord in this simple, humble style. Now, if you want to open your heart right now and just invite the love and the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus into your heart and acknowledge you need him desperately, just pray with me right now. Just repeat after me. Just open your heart to the Lord between you and him. Jesus, I cry out to you. I need you, Lord. Please wash me and cleanse me from my sin with your precious blood that was shed. Fill me, Lord, with the power of your spirit to give me strength to live for you. Jesus, bring your resurrection life to my own soul, to my marriage, to my family, to my life. Jesus, make yourself known to me, real to me. Reveal yourself powerfully to me. Lord, I receive you. Help me walk with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I've seen the light in the darkness. I won't hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, 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 whoa. And I won't worry about tomorrow or fear in times of trouble. I keep my heart seeking you. Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, whoa, whoa.